Good morning. Have I told you guys yet that I love my job? I can't believe I'm being paid to do this. It just blows my mind. Really. That doesn't mean you get to stop paying me. It's amazing. I, I have, I love this study. I love studying the covenants. And in the last weeks as I've poured into this, I find myself often in tears. Tears of, uh, of awe and joy. Uh, to witness the unity of Scripture and the, the amazing work of God and His plan of redemption to bring it all together in Christ. And we're going to see that uh, this morning. Last week, we began to trace the outworking of God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we considered four specific events in the lives of Abraham and Sarah that powerfully demonstrate a couple of things about God. First, that God forbears and continues to bless His chosen ones even when they find it very hard to trust in His promises, when they're struggling to be faithful themselves. Secondly, that God creates faith in His chosen ones by never failing to carry out His promises. We saw both Abraham and Sarah laugh with derision and disbelief when Abraham at age 100 and Sarah at age 90 first heard God's promise that the covenant son would come through her. Then we saw God change Sarah's laughter of disbelief to laughter of rejoicing when God fulfilled that promise precisely as he had given it. We saw that Abraham, whose actions had repeatedly put the covenant at risk, if he had had the power to do so, ended up believing God's promises so utterly that he was willing to slay his own son Isaac at God's command because he fully believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead in order to keep his promise of the covenant seed. God took Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob through a very similar journey, a journey of faith, teaching them that his promises are absolutely trustworthy. And then God expanded the 12 sons of Jacob into a nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he continued to take his entire people through that same journey of discovering his faithfulness to his covenant promises. This morning, we're going to pick up the journey after Jacob, and we're going to continue to look at the testimony of Scripture regarding the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant, and we'll see how this great covenant is finally fulfilled. Now, here's kind of the layout of where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to, we're going to examine the, some of the historical events, and really, we're going to look at in what ways the covenant came to bear in God's dealings with the nation of Israel, from Jacob to Jesus. Then we're going to see how the covenant ultimately is fulfilled. And after that, we'll look at who are the true heirs of God's promises to Abraham, and how do we become heirs of those same promises. And we're going to begin by rather briskly tracing through some of the events by which God worked out his covenant promises to Abraham in the life of the nation uh, 
which came forth as the earthly descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. We see first that the Abrahamic covenant is the basis for God's forbearance toward Israel. Now, forbearance simply means a delay or withholding of God's chastisement against Israel. Uh, sometimes as parents, we forbear with our children uh, instead of pouncing every time. And we, and we have a reason for doing that. Well, God had a reason for doing that with Israel. Very early in Israel's history, we find that God's forbearance toward them when they acted with disloyalty toward him was based on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Most of you are familiar with the golden calf incident, right? It was in both movies. While Moses was on Mount Sinai meeting with God and receiving the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments, the Israelites, of course, were down at the base of the mountain having a grand old time. They took all the gold that God had given to them through the Egyptians as the spoils of a war, uh, the spoils of of a battle won and fought without them ever wielding a sword. They took that gold and they handed it to Aaron and they said, make us a, a golden calf, make us something that we can worship. And they they fell down and worshipped that calf as the one who had delivered them from Egypt. While Moses was up on the top of the mountain and Joshua was halfway up uh, waiting, the crazy thing is the the glory of God was still at the top of the mountain the whole time. And they could see it. And while that was going on, they had a real rip-snorter of a drunken party In Exodus 32, 9 and 10, while Moses was still on the mountain talking with God, the Lord told him that he was ready to destroy the Israelites and start over from from Moses. But in verses 11 through 14, Moses beseeched the Lord not to destroy the Israelites, and he based that appeal on the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Starting in verse 13, the, the red text up there, Remember, Abraham, remember... I don't want to de-emphasize that word. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself, and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, don't get hung up on the part about God changing his mind. Moses is simply recording what happened from his perspective. And the whole conversation that God had with Moses was God's idea in the first place. The point of it was for God to bring Moses to, the, to where he made the association between God's covenant promises and God's forbearance toward his covenant people. Uh, specifically at this critical point in their history, a point in which they uh, they clearly deserved to be destroyed. Now, from that point forward, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, a great many of the refer- references to the Abrahamic covenant have to do with the matter of God's forbearance in spite of Israel's persistent rebellion and sin as a nation. In Leviticus 26 we see God's promise to restrain himself from destroying Israel spelled out very explicitly. God lays out in this chapter the blessings that Israel would experience if they obeyed 
another covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which we'll get to next week, and the curses that they would experience if they disobeyed that that bilateral covenant. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, God takes that same set of blessings and curses and he amplifies it and expands on it considerably. In both of those passages, God makes it crystal clear in advance (laughs) that he knows Israel will disobey his commandments. He tells them they will. And he tells them that they will experience the full weight of the curses that he's enumerating. And he then tells them what he will do when they finally turn back to him. When we get to the Mosaic Covenant in the next couple of weeks, we'll look closely at how Israel's heart will be turned back to God. And that's a a very important idea. But for now, what I want you to see in this passage is how God's promises to Abraham enter into his dealings with his covenant people, his disobedient people. Uh, He says in verse... 42, if they basically says, when they return, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will also remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. And then he says a little later, he says, he explains why the land will be desolate for a time and Israel will be taken out of the land into exile. And he says in verse 43, it'll be because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am Yahweh their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the side of the nations that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. Now notice the word play in this passage, in the second part of this passage, between the words rejected and abhorred. Uh, Israel, God says, rejected and abhorred his law, but God then says he will not reject nor abhor Israel. This is a kind of a powerful thing if you're bearing in mind that all this was transmitted orally for a very long time. If you're sitting here listening to this being spoken by the priest and you hear the repetition of those words, that's going to get your attention. God did not do to Israel what Israel did to God. Instead, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here he's promising in advance that he will remember it. When God says he will remember something, it doesn't mean that it slipped his mind and something jogged his memory. It means that he is basing his actions on that which he has declared. And in almost every case in which the Bible says that God is remembering something, the something that he's remembering is his covenant promises. Here in Leviticus 26, God is emphatically explaining that his forbearance with Israel in the form of not destroying them, and his willingness ultimately to bless them will be based on the covenant promises that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's telling them this again before it comes to bear. Now note that this whole chapter, which lays out, as I said, the blessings and the curses associated with the law of Moses, devotes 11 verses to the blessings 
and 31 verses to the curses. Deuteronomy 28 through 30, which takes this ex- the same theme and expands upon it, the blessings and the curses, provides an even greater contrast. In Deuteronomy, 14 verses are devoted to the curses and 53 verses is to the blessings and 53 verses are devoted to the curses. This is because God knows in advance that Israel won't spend much time in the realm of blessing. He knows that they will not obey His law. He knows that they will be stubborn and stiff-necked and will persist in rebelling against Him. But He says, in spite of this, in spite of their persistent sin, He will not destroy them. That statement that God will not utterly destroy His people comes up over and over and over in the Old Testament throughout all of the prophet, the prophetic writings, the, the historical narrative in the prophets. Now, God will judge Israel harshly for their sins, and they will suffer great pain by His hand, but He will not destroy them. And the explicit reason that God presents for not destroying Israel isn't because they don't deserve to be destroyed. They do, just like we do. It's because he will never break his covenant. No matter what his people do, he won't violate his promises. Now, I know I'm saying this a lot. It's because it's very, very important. Now, this is this next point is critically important for us to understand. In all of our experiences with people, we're accustomed to unkept promises, right? especially from people in positions of great power over us. The rate at at which politicians spew forth promises, it's kind of like a pallet of Jiffy Pop thrown into a bonfire. (laughs) Nobody except the very naive places any hope in the fulfillment of those promises. And our entire culture has followed suit in the way that we deal with one another. In the old days, you could shake a hand and make a commitment, and it was considered a commitment. Now, if someone makes a promise that we consider important, we go get a lawyer. And we create an elaborate contract in an effort to require that the promise be kept. And then when it really comes down to it, we question whether it will be kept when it really matters. It's very hard for us to take anyone's promise at face value and feel like we can actually bank on it. But, beloved, God keeps his promises. Over 4,000 years after he made this covenant with Abraham, he is still acting on those promises, and he will fulfill them perfectly. And we'll talk about that fulfillment in just a little while. All right. The, the Abrahamic covenant is the basis for God's forbearance toward Israel. God also says it's the basis upon which He allowed Israel to go into the land of promise for a time. And uh, when the Israelites were at the threshold of the land of promise in the book of Deuteronomy, and God was about to bring them across the Jordan River into the land after they had wandered for 40 years in the desert because of their unbelief, speaking to them through Moses, God says, See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which... The Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 9, 
God makes it very clear that the reason He brought them into the land at that point was not because they had obeyed Him. But it was in order to confirm the oath which He had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was also to judge the people in the land at the time. But as far as Israel was concerned, they didn't deserve to be in the land, uh, but God was honoring a promise. Joshua chapter 21, I'm not going to put it up here, but verses 41 to 45, God says that, uh, Joshua says that God kept his promises. That the promise of the land, that all of the promises that God had made to Abraham, God kept. In fact, he says, uh, he, he says that God fulfilled or kept all of the promises. Well, uh, In that passage, excuse me, in Joshua 21, what we see is is a near-term fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. But that's not the final fulfillment. In the generation of Joshua, and to an even greater extent, under the reign of David and under the reign of Solomon, Israel got to see God fulfill the promise of land, seed, and blessing, but only temporarily and only in a limited way compared with how those same promises would be ultimately worked out. God continued after that point throughout the Old Testament to to repeatedly look back and point back to the covenant that he had made with Abraham as the basis for his forbearance toward Israel, his protection toward Israel, his vengeance against those who oppressed Israel, and even his forgiveness of Israel's sin. And ultimately, as we'll see God points back to the Abrahamic covenant and says that we who believe in Jesus Christ are included in those covenant promises. Now, uh, I mentioned vengeance. God executed vengeance against those who oppressed Israel. And sometimes he used people to oppress Israel and to judge them, but other times he avenged Israel against those enemies, including some that he had brought against them. And he told them, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. And then a lot of people know this part of the passage. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who continue with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So God's advocacy for Israel against those who oppressed them is in keeping with His covenant promises. In Genesis 12, 3, God said those who, to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse, and those who bless you, I will bless. And that's exactly what He has done. The prophet Micah wrote during the latter period of the kings, in the time leading up to the exile and captivity of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
Micah's prophecy warns Judah about this impending severe judgment from the hand of God, a judgment that they deserve because of their persistent disobedience. But Micah's prophecy also repeatedly promises that God will deliver Judah from the coming captivity and will restore them to the land in peace. The whole book is a juxtaposition of the, of the warning of judgment and the promise of restoration. In chapter 5, some of you know Micah 5 too, Micah says that the one through whom Israel will be delivered will come from the city of Bethlehem and that his goings forth were from the days of eternity past. And he says that his reign will be over all the earth. He's, of course, talking about Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then at the end of chapter 7, in the passage that's up here on the screen, in verses 18 through 20, Micah concludes that entire book, his prophecy, with these amazing words. Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which thou didst swear to our forefathers from the days of old. Now, it's essential that we understand who Micah is talking about here. He praises God as the one who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. Who is the remnant of God's possession? Beloved, it's not the chaff, it's the wheat. It isn't the unchosen, it's the chosen. It it is those whom God calls his possession, his inheritance. And he's saying that even his chosen ones... Among the Israelites, those who belong to God by His gracious calling, those who believe in Him, whose faith has been reckoned to them as righteousness, even those are guilty of rebellious acts against Him, just as we are. And even though He judges and chastises them severely, He declares that He will not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. You want to know what God delights in? There you have it. The Hebrew word that's translated twice in the verses up here as unchanging love is the word chesed. That is an amazing word. It's an exceedingly powerful word in the Old Testament. It's a word that must be understood if we're to do justice to a study of the covenants because most of the occurrences of the word chesed, overwhelmingly most, show up in passages that are talking about the covenants. It's the same word that's often translated as loving kindness and occasionally as mercy. But I consider unchanging love to be a somewhat better translation. Don will agree with me that that's a tough word to translate, but it's a very important word. God's chesed is his steadfast covenant love. It speaks of his unwavering commitment to keep his covenant promises and of his gracious acts by which he proves that commitment over and over and over. Chesed is an attribute of God's very character and person. It's as as much a part of who he is as his righteousness, 
His holiness, His grace, compassion, justice, and truth. Our God delights in steadfastly keeping His covenant promises. All right, so we've seen that God's covenant with Abraham continued to be the basis for his dealings with Israel throughout the ages, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His forbearance toward Israel in spite of their persistent sin, his miraculous acts to bring them into the land of promise, his curses against those who oppressed them, even his forgiveness of their sin. All of these gracious provisions from God toward Israel proceeded from his unchanging covenant faithfulness that he promised to Abraham. But all these things are just preamble. All of God's dealings with Israel pointed forward to the true fulfillment of his covenant promises. And that's what we're going to look at next. In the passage that our brother Gordon just read, Paul makes some exceedingly important statements regarding the Abrahamic covenant. And he tells us emphatically that God's promises to Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In verses 16 to 19, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. And you can go back through the Old Testament and look at every single instance in which the covenant is referenced and that speaks of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's always singular. What I'm saying is this, Paul says, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The bilateral covenant can't cancel out the unilateral covenant. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now first note that the word promise occurs five times in these four verses. And secondly, note what Paul says about the word seed. He says, until the seed at the end of the verse, until the seed should come through whom the promise would be fulfilled, or to whom the promise uh, has been made. We might expect it to say through whom, because it's, we don't have a hard time understanding that God fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant through Jesus Christ, right? But that's not what this says. It says, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And verse 16 says that seed is Jesus Christ. This is critically important. Paul is saying that the promised seed of Abraham is not ultimately believing Israel and believing Gentiles. He's saying that the promised seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Jesus Christ. The first time I saw this, it just boggled my mind. Now, does this mean that the literal descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, are not the promised seed? Let me try to clarify a bit. The nation of Israel is referred to in the Old Testament as the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Psalm 105, verse 6 specifically, talks in the plural of, of Jacob's descendants, plural, uh, the sons of Jacob being the seed. But as with many of the most important things in the Old Testament, there's an earthbound reality that's true, but there's a heavenly reality that supersedes the earthly. And there are examples of this throughout the Old Testament. When we examine the Mosaic Covenant starting next week, we'll see that there were earthly sacrifices that God appointed to address the sins of His people. Those sacrifices were given by God. They were commanded by God. But they were only foreshadowings of the one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Similarly, there were earthly priests. But they were actually just sinful men, right? They were imperfect foreshadowings of the one perfect, sinless high priest, Jesus Christ. Both the earthly and the heavenly are real. Both are given by God, but one supersedes the other by an infinite measure. The nation of Israel is the earthly seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And the covenant promises were indeed made to them. But Israel is a foreshadowing of the one true seed, Jesus Christ. Now I need to clarify one additional very important point before we follow Paul's statement in Galatians 3 out to its its conclusion. God's promises to Abraham were made to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but not to all of them and not only to them. I'll say that one more time. God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were made to their physical descendants, but not to all of them and not only to them. Paul puts it like this in Romans 9. He says it is not... This passage flows right after he said, I wish that I could be accursed so that my brethren, my fellow Israelites, could be saved. And he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, the promised covenant son, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Guys, it's not your fleshly lineage that counts. It's your relationship to the promise of God that counts. And more to the point, it's your relationship to the one to whom the promise was made. Ishmael was as much the fleshly seed of Abraham as Isaac. But God declared that it would be Isaac through whom the true seed, the promised covenant seed, would come. And that seed is Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the one true seed promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as the one true seed, he preeminently, above all others, is the one to whom the covenant promises were made. But God tells us that his promises to Abraham apply not only to Christ, but also to men. How does that work out? Who are the heirs with Christ of the covenant promises? Well, God's answer is exquisitely simple. 
And it points entirely to Christ alone. The theme of the worship this morning was highly appropriate and tied to what we're talking about here. Christ alone. In Galatians 3, verses 27 to 29, we see this statement from Paul. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself, yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Whom does God call fellow heirs of the promises given to Abraham? All who are in Christ. That's the same answer that God gives to the the questions, whom do I call righteous or whom do I see as holy? The only way that we come to possess anything that is of worth in the eyes of God is in Christ Jesus, right? Every good and eternal thing that, that we possess... We have because He has it. Because it belongs to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, Paul said, But by His, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our unity with Jesus Christ, our identification with Him, is the most all-encompassing reality that we know. We have no righteousness of our own. It's His. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In Him. We have no holiness of our own. It's His. We have died to sin because He died and we are in Him. We are raised from the dead because He was raised from the dead and we are in Him. We will stand spotless and blameless in the eyes of God for all eternity because He has been spotless and blameless from eternity past to eternity future. And we will be found by God to be in Him. And here's what's most astounding to me. It is in Jesus Christ that the promised seed of Abraham becomes a multitude. The seed goes from being one to being many. And that multitude which God promised would become as the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. That multitude is all who are in Christ Jesus. Not only those from the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who have believed in Christ but also those from all tribes and tongues and nations who are in Christ. Jew and Gentile, slave and free man, male and female, all of you who have been baptized into Christ, who have clothed yourselves with Christ, you who belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this applies to people from any age in the history of mankind. How? Well, whether we're talking about the saints of God who live before the cross or the saints of God who live after the cross, we are the seed of Abraham because we are in Christ. Which brings us to the last and most important question. 
How is it that we become heirs of the covenant promises? If Jesus is the one true seed, and it is only in Him that we may share in the promises of the covenant, how do we come to be in Him? How do we become heirs with Christ of the promises? And again, God's answer is profoundly simple. By sharing the faith of Abraham. My brother, uh, Brad Burton, says, if you don't have the faith of Abraham, get rid of it because it's the wrong faith. In Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29, I'm adding one verse to the passage we just looked at, and that's the verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In Genesis 15, when God was expanding the promises to Abraham and defining very specifically the land promise, first he told Abraham that through him would come the promised son. Abraham was at that point, he didn't understand how this was going to work. He thought, he said, the only, the only person in my family that might bear a child is my servant Eliezer. So, okay, if that's what you're going to do, that's what you're going to do. And God said, no, it won't be through Eliezer, Abraham. It'll be through you that I'll give the covenant seed. And the passage tells us in verse 6, Abraham believed God, he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is one of the most foundational statements in all of Scripture. When it says that Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness, what that means is that God declared Abraham righteous in his eyes on the basis of faith. And this is the same way that men become righteous in the eyes of God in any age. In Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Paul points us back to the same declaration that is in Genesis 15, 6 to explain how we become heirs of God's promise promises to Abraham. He says, even so, Abraham believed God and it, his faith, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "All all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer." See how many times faith and belief are in that short passage? By the way, when did God first promise that he would save Gentiles as well as physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Right here. In Genesis 15, 6 that this refers to. Actually, in Genesis 12, 3. When he told Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul says that the Gentiles would be justified, declared righteous in the the eyes of God the same way Abraham was, right? By faith. I think it's astounding that God says, that, that Paul says, God preached the gospel to Abraham when he said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I don't know how all that works. I know that Jesus said in John 8, Your father Abraham looked forward to the coming of my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. Ah, gives me goosebumps.
In Romans 4, 18 to 25, Paul says, well, he tells us about Abraham's faith. And there's some things here that are very important for us to see. Because I know one thing that's probably going through a lot of your minds is, okay, what about the people who lived before the revelation of Jesus Christ was fully provided? I think Paul starts to answer that right here. He says, In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And I love this, being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's a great definition of faith, along with Hebrews 11.1. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then look at this in verse 23 and following. Now not for his, for Abraham's sake only was, was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. (coughs) He who was delivered up because of our transgression and raised because of our justification. Now this may be, it may seem confusing, but again, I believe it's actually quite simple. In any age, at any point in the history of mankind, the way a person becomes righteous in the eyes of God is by believing, by trusting in the promises that God has made known in that age. For the Old Testament saints who didn't yet have the fullness of God's revelation as we do, God applied the blood of Jesus Christ to them who trusted in His promises of the things hoped for, who believed that He would be true to deliver on promised things not yet seen. They trusted in Him as their protector, their provider, as the one who is sovereign over all things and from whom alone comes all blessing. And God reckoned their faith to their account as righteousness and covered them in the blood of Jesus Christ even though they didn't yet know who He was. Because ultimately, guys, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so no one should boast. How do we today become heirs of the covenant promises that God made to Abraham? Well, Lenny covered some of that this morning. <laughs> he said it's all of Christ. In John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. That pretty well clears it up for us today. No other name. We who believe in Jesus Christ, and only we who believe in Jesus Christ, are blessed with Abraham. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That which belongs to Him has been given to us for all eternity.
including our very unity with God. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us that we will dwell together forever with all the holy ones of God in the presence of our God in the land of promise, in Zion, the new Jerusalem that has come down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll have no need of a temple because the Lamb of God will be our temple. We'll have no need of the sun or the moon to give us light because our light will be the glory of God and our lamp will be the Lamb of God. We will stand before God forgiven, holy and righteous because by faith we will be found by God to be in Christ. Loving Father, these seem to us at first as difficult ideas. But Lord, this we know with great simplicity and purity. That your promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and in him alone. For people of all ages, it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that avails to atone for sin. It is only His perfect high priesthood that is sufficient to mediate between you and us. He is the one who makes us to stand before you spotless and blameless. It makes us marvel, Lord, when we look at your word and we look at the the consistent testimony from the first books of the Bible to the last that Jesus Christ is the one by whom we come to be rightly related to you. I pray, Lord, if there are any here who, who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their one and only Savior, that this would be the day of their salvation. I pray that you would pierce their hearts and cause them to see their sin, that they are just like Israel, just like all of us. God pours out His grace upon us and we continue, we continue to be rebellious in our hearts. And the only way that our hearts are turned and made holy Is through Him. It's, it's to Jesus Christ that we give all the glory and all the praise. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.